news, play breakdowns, power rankings, storylines you never hear talked about anywhere else. It's all straight shots here. Fired by straight shooters. S and Gun. This is the Objective Basketball Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Objective Basketball Podcast. It is a Friday morning, if you are listening, Friday afternoon for some folks. Uh, usually, it's just me and Lauren here on our second podcast of the week, but we are double time in here because it is the holiday season. We are trying to get in as much guests as possible before we take a little bit of a break here on the Objective Basketball Podcast. And what a guest do we have, ladies and gentlemen, um, known for all things Indiana Pacers related, uh, you know, writer, creator, if you will, of basketball she wrote. Uh, you can see her clipping things on Twitter. You can see her talking about, you know, all the minutia when it comes to basketball for the Indiana Pacers. This is Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being willing to talk about the Pacers after, you know, they go clear to the finals of the season tournament and now haven't been playing quite to their level, although they put up 140 points again last night. So there's something. Yeah, yeah. Against those good old Charlotte Hornets. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> um, it's interesting because the I guess the Pacers to many casual fans, right? That in-season tournament was sort of their introduction to what they are and how they have been this season. Um, obviously, for people who have been watching, they are the number one offense still in the NBA, number one offense in NBA history still. Uh, we'll see if they can kind of keep at that pace. But for the most part, I guess, just to kind of open this conversation up, how have been the vibes given the early season success, maybe some petering off recently? Like what what is... What's kind of where people are at with this Pacers team? And I got to tell you, it's a strange experience every night to watch the greatest offense of all time and one of the worst defenses of all time from end yeah. to end. It can be a little bit like whiplash, kind of like these last eight games where you win four in a row and then you, you lose four in a row. I mean, I do think it was an unprecedented road trip. I think you can point at a lot of things and say like, hey, you know, being in Vegas and not being back at Gamebridge Fieldhouse for 12 days, that was pretty rough. They dealt with some injuries mm -hmm. throughout that time. So you can, you can write some of it off, but I'm to a point with the defense where I don't think the answers are on the current roster. I've seen that coaching that staff make a lot of adjustments going back okay. to last season to now where the scheme is pretty dramatically different. I see them continue to tinker with it and against the right type of opponents like a Minnesota, like a Los Angeles Clippers, they just don't have the right personnel in order to yeah. get enough stops to win those yeah. types of games, especially if they have an off shooting night. So like this year, if they shoot below 30% from three, they're one in seven, I believe. And not that's mm -hmm. counting the loss to the Lakers. So the threes aren't falling for them. It's a, it, it's tougher go. Yeah. So I'm, I'm I, actually glad you brought that up uh, because, mm -hmm. and it's funny because I was going to sort of ask this towards the end of our conversation, but since you brought up the defense already, let's, let's talk about it. Um, 28th as it stands currently in points allowed per 100 possessions um, just feels like, you know, for a team centered around miles Turner, who for all intents and purposes is like, you know, shot blocking, big man, rim protector type who can, do some things for you in the back line to clean those things up. He's sort of being asked to do too much to plug some of these holes on the perimeter. Seems like it is a point of attack issue for this defense. Um, is it something else or is that just it? Like, is, is it as simple as their point of attack defense isn't as good 
or are there other areas where they're just lacking on the defensive end? I mean, in that particular area, it certainly hasn't helped that Andrew Nemhart hasn't played since the game against the Bucks. Yeah. This is somewhat of a hot take, but I think that Andrew Nemhart is the most complete defender on that roster. Um, the term- numbers seem to check that out, by the way, like plus minus off all that stuff seems yeah. to coordinate. In terms of his yeah. ability to stay skinny over screens, he gives you the best chance of that. They don't run ice coverage anymore, but his ability to flip his hips out of ice coverage is, is quite good. And then mm-hmm. he's a defensive playmaker. So he's not, he's somebody who can break from scheme without compromising a scheme. He makes a lot of tremendous reads on that end of the floor. Almost every game you're going to be able to clip something and be like, that's something that no one else on this roster would have done. So it it has not helped that he hasn't been there, especially in that game against the Lakers. He was the best defender against LeBron a year ago. People point to the Mm -hmm. game winner. It was more his defense that stood out in that matchup. So that's one thing, their point of attack defense. I don't think that Bruce Brown's probably defended quite to what my expectation would have been for him as a point of attack defender. That doesn't mean he hasn't Mm -hmm. made other contributions in other places. Um, But just for people who don't know as an overview, like last year, the Pacers scheme was very different. So they would have been very aggressive at the nail. They were somewhat overzealous, I felt, with the low man. So they gave up a higher percentage of corner threes but they were still giving up tons in the paint, despite the fact that they were putting bodies in the paint. So I kind of would refer to it as being aggressively passive. They're very aggressive Mm. at packing the paint, but then passive in preventing any of that from getting in there. Also not a good offense or not a good defensive rebounding team either year, but their first chance defense is bad regardless. So I, you know, it is what it is. So this year they go into it and it's the exact opposite. Like they limit threes more than any other team in the NBA. Hence the Lakers going two of 13 from three while they give up 86 points in the paint. They defend the pick and roll two versus two. They like to do a lot of late switching, which can create some mismatches. Since then they've shown a little bit more help in places. They were overloading a lot more against the Clippers. They were showing help on more pick and rolls last night against the Hornets. So we'll see how that continues to go. They gave up 150 against the Clippers anyways. And that's where I get to. It's like, this is an overworked, ball of clay they've tried so many things and it's like you don't have an answer against wings like you can watch that game against minnesota they gave up 40 to carl anthony towns they gave up 37 to anthony edwards and you can watch it aaron neesmith is a foul machine for one he's very pesky has a lot of vitamin as a defender but it's like this is an amusement park and there might as well be a sign that says like you must be this tall to enter and aaron's getting aaron's getting dispelled jarris walker is too raw at this point despite what the fan base thinks that he's going to automatically solve these problems he's got to root out some of his gambling issues and some of his other defensive principles and that's going to take time i think that's okay he's only 20 years old and then beyond that obi toppin's the only starter with a negative net rating which that's what the Pacers are scoring that's not directly it's not an individual statistic yeah yeah. but (laughs) but you can see that like when you have to assign Giannis Antetokounmpo to Buddy Heald and you have to assign Kyle Kuzma to Buddy Heald and Buddy by his own standard has been better defensively than he has in the past I give him credit for that but it's an indictment Mm -hmm. if you have to make those assignments and that's that's just what it is like until they get a medium-sized guy I do not see this improving (laughs) immensely that's fair. That's these are very familiar issues. I feel I can feel your pain. This is like my my Mavericks. every single day. So it's all very familiar. Yeah, it's like the exact same story, but with a paint protector um, that's available. So I do kind of want to like switch and look at the offensive end of things. Obviously, the story of the Indiana Pacers this entire year is just the overwhelming like pop of Tyrese Halliburton. So I kind of wanted to ask you, looking at the guys around him, you mentioned Obi Toppin earlier and even uh, Miles Turner and Buddy Heald, like what they can add offensively. As far as Tyrese Halliburton being the focal point of the offense, what have you noticed that maybe the casual fan might realize that he does add to their offensive game uh, that's kind of just hidden below the surface? 
I mean, I think everybody when they watch the Pacers probably gets mostly enamored with how fast they're playing. It's almost mm-hmm. jarring to me to go watch other games because I'm like, why aren't you getting into these sets quicker? <laughs> like, where is the intentionality here with this, you know, type things? Because they don't just play fast in the in the open court. They play very fast getting into their actions in the half court as well. And part of yeah. that, like I would say a nuance that probably doesn't get paid a lot of attention to with regards to Tyrese is like we always think about his passing creativity and all of you know his eye manipulation is that he's very good at rejecting screens. And when you're playing at that fast of a speed, it's very hard for a defender to absorb the ball in transition and also direct the ball and force him to use that screen. So when he rejects it, which I think he's like number two, according to Second Spectrum and rejected picks per 100, you're putting the defense, you're putting the opposing team's defense into an emergency rotation. Like your first option mm-hmm. typically should be to reject because that's not what the defense is geared to take away. So yeah. that's one of the nuances that I think stands out most about him. And then just the Pacers as a whole, they're the number one team in efficiency scoring out of picks. And they set more non-contact picks than any team in the NBA. So like I talked about this when I was slipping like Nikai crazy. Since, yeah. yeah. I talk about this when I was on with Nikias and Steve. Now, not all of that is always intentional. Like DeMontis Sabonis ain't walking through that door. They don't have anybody with that type <laughs> of screen craft, but they really value quick outs and they really value running slips, what they call blur. Yeah. So ghost screens. And they use those from a variety of different players. And that's to their benefit because you as a defender don't always completely know who is going to be the screener. Where is the screener coming from? Am I actually going to feel that contact and then react to those hesitations? So like a play, I'm sure people remember from the in-season tournament, the dagger that Tyrese made when Al Horford was out on that island. And Buddy Heald goes and sets that ghost screen and Al Horford releases. First of all, how many players are you going to be able to point to and say, hey, they're going to leave Tyrese Halliburton on that island because that person just ran across like they were lighting a match. So he goes with Buddy, and then Tyrese's ability just to hit the switch pocket is a really big part of his game as well. So Jalen's not attached yet. Jalen fouls him. That's kind of the combination of the Pacers' offense. A lot of ghost screens, a lot of gravity, Mm -hmm. and a lot of Tyrese using his range first to open up other things about his game. So a couple things on that. Uh, first of all, you mentioned intention and purpose and playing with intention. And, you know, as watching the Toronto Raptors, there's not a whole lot of that for the most part. Um, so, yes, it's just it's very obvious. It's jarring when you watch the Raptors and you watch any other team. But then when you watch the Pacers, it's like two different sides of the spectrum. Um, the other thing I was going to say, you kind of mentioned it, the slips, the the way that they're using these screeners to get these guys into space. But it's also helping manufacture a lot of quick movement for these guys, not just in terms of passers, but off ball. And I I kind of, I wanted to ask you in terms of like how this looks on a night to night basis and how teams are countering it, right? The coverages that they're throwing at them, like in that Clippers game, I felt they were more comfortable switching these screens or, or just like outright trapping Tyrese and yeah. Okay. That's getting the ball out of his hands, but like overall, this is a natural progression for him as a ball handler, right? because he's becoming more dominant as a scorer, more efficient as a shooter, they want to get the ball out of his hands more often. What do you think he has to do? What's the next level? What's the next progression in his game to get more comfortable dealing with these switches, dealing with these traps? Yeah, so I mean, I think everybody's probably going to point to the in-season tournament loss against the Lakers because they did so much blitzing and be like, you yeah. know, that's 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 the blueprint on how to stop Tyrese, which it's kind of funny. Cause he like, he had 20 and 10 in that game. And that was like a disappointing game, but, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think that part of it too is, is that the Lakers were uniquely positioned in order to trap him because if you're mm-hmm. bringing miles Turner up there, which that is their best screening combination is Tyrese and miles. It's like number three in the NBA. I think is that, 
you're bringing Anthony Davis. So it's way more size and height in addition to Cam Reddish and limbs that Tyrese was having to pass around, which he has a ton of size for position. So in the past, it hasn't always been like a great look. And like that night, I was kind of like, this isn't the first team that's blitzed Tyrese. Like the Atlanta Hawks were three quarter court trapping him in the fourth quarter. He didn't score, but Buddy Heald went five of five in crunch time. The Miami Heat did the same thing in the fourth quarter. It's just the reverse, Buddy didn't make shots. So that's kind of where it's going back to again. Like Tyrese is always going to be the type of person who's going to be inclusive. He's always going to be pass first. He trusts his teammates very much. And I think that that's what order the Pacers want him to attack this from is get the ball out early in the game against these traps. Once your teammates start making shots, then the coverage is going to relax against you. Like even the Hornets were doing that last night in the third quarter, Buddy Heald has 19 points in the third, mostly out of trapping. And then Tyrese goes off at the end of the game because the coverage is switched. You pointing out that game against the Clippers, though, was that was a unique one because I that was a little bit different because they came out in the third quarter and they took Zubots off of Isaiah Jackson because in the first half they they were mostly blitzing, playing him high. So they took Zubots off of Isaiah Jackson and put him onto Bruce Brown or onto TJ McConnell. So then the Pacers were kind of reorienting. I felt a little bit too much around that. And like, we, we must use Bruce as the screener now. We must use TJ as the screener now because otherwise Zubots is just going to be parking it in the lane and we're going to have extra right. bodies. And the problem that you run into there is because Isaiah Jackson's the big on the court, that's who Paul George was guarding. And Paul George is just like, you know, I don't really care about you above the free throw line. <laughs> so I'm just going to go cover up that screen. So like, that's something that they went to against the Lakers was like, Hey, we don't want to bring Anthony Davis to the ball anymore. We're going to run empty side with Bruce, have him leak out and be the screener in the paint. It's, it's way more visibility for Tyrese to get the ball out. Well, when you tried to go to that against the Clippers, they just flipped the matchup. So <laughs> Um, that's something that I will look out for. I've seen more teams doing more of the cross matching lately against some of the shooters that they're willing to live with. And then obviously like it would have helped the Pacers if miles Turner was available in that game. Cause you're not going to help as yeah. far off of miles as yeah. you would with Isaiah Jackson. So. Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree. Yeah. Turner was, I mean, him, missing him is it's like such a massive problem for this Pacers team whenever he's out. <laughs> um, yeah. the, okay. So Samson asked a question and I kind of want to throw it in here just cause it's sort of related. Tyrese is also incredible off ball. Um, Samson folk friend of the podcast, obviously. Um, do you think guards are better at creating without the dribble because of Steph Curry's influence? And is Tyrese at the forefront of that? I mean, I think this is kind of like the philosophical difference to a degree between Damian Lillard and Steph Curry, because Damian mm-hmm. Lillard, they both take logo three, so they get compared to each other a lot. But Dame takes the logo three because of the threat of his drive. Yeah. Steph drives because of the threat of his shot. So I think that Tyrese falls more into that category. His driving against a switch typically opens up because of the things that we pointed to before. If he gets really aggressive hunting the switch pocket, then people play him closer and he can turn the corner, which we're starting to see more of. Like it was, it was very strange to me in the in-season tournament that they were willing to leave Al Horford or Brooke Lopez out on an Island against him instead of going switch to blitz. So I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that Steph Curry had like the most leeway and we're seeing even more guards do this. I mean, even just beyond Tyrese, like, you know, Emmanuel quickly isn't a starting point guard in the NBA, but he creates a lot mm-hmm. with the threat of his shot and his ability to hit the switch pocket before, you know, in one in that little pocket of space before. When Tyrese Maxey. Connects Tyrese to the Maxie next. Yeah. 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 And, but again, that one would be a little bit different because he's mostly getting that because of the threat of his downhill momentum. Whereas yeah. Steph and Tyrese are doing it more in the reverse. Cause like last year, the best two game example of this is Tyrese scored one point against the Miami heat. There was some, moments in that game where he was really spinning his tires trying to create against bam head on when they go down to miami he has his franchise record tying 10 made threes 
and scores 43, including the game winner. And that's right. because yeah. he was attacking it in the reverse way. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that has been a growing trend in the NBA and certainly for Tyrese. I mean, he's, I think he's like right below Trey and Luca this year in terms of unassisted percentage of his shots that are unassisted threes. So, yep. and he's continued to expand his range. Like he's taken more deep threes as, uh, mm-hmm. since he's come over from the Kings as well. Interesting. Yeah. So looking at kind of a different aspect of his offensive game as a ball handler, when he's being faced with uh, either from from defensive coverages, either switching or, or, or being trapped immediately to either try to set him up with these one on one matchups or even get trapped and get the ball out of his hands. Is there a specific sort of evolution or next step that you want to see him throw back at defenses to kind of throw them off or, or what evolution kind of of his ball handling when he's faced with those different coverages, would you like to see from him moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I think some of it comes back to still he's wired to be deferential. So when he's seeing some of those traps and there are, there have been times in certain games, like Philadelphia tried to do some face guarding and trapping of him and he was more proactive and that he was using his dribble so that they couldn't trap him in the first place. And like what we said before, when he's as good as he is at rejecting screens, like he could certainly Mm -hmm. use some of that in order to go away from the trap in the first place, especially when the big's that high getting ready to jump out. So Mm -hmm. it's just about him making the decision of like, you know, this is the way I'm going to view that and I'm going to go get my offense and be able to manipulate my handle away from that. Because I don't necessarily know, like he has a pretty decent change of speed and he covers Mm -hmm. a lot of ground, which I think is an underrated part of him. And he has a very low gather. Like those are kind of the hallmarks mm-hmm. of his ability to be cerebral as he moves across the court, but he doesn't, right. he doesn't have like, you know, he's not Kyrie Irving with the handles out here. So <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I think that that's probably some of it is just that being able to navigate. So he doesn't get trapped in the first place. And that's something that like I brought up Dame, like that's something that Dame had to learn with time. Right. Like yeah. early on in the playoffs, he wasn't like, if you trapped him, the, the Blazers had problems. Like that was something right. that he had to grow and get better at it over his time with the Trailblazers. Yeah. It feels like you mentioned something Dame about still being... has that problem. Oh, sorry, I've, I've, it feels like to me, Dame <laughs> still has that problem sometimes, but that's just, that's neither here nor there. Either way. Sorry, Lauren, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, you mentioned Tyrese being sort of differential and, and looking for his guys kind of following up similar to the question that I just asked. But do you think the key for the Pacers to really, I don't want to say reach their ceiling, but maybe take even a next step forward is to find those right pieces if he's going to continue to be more deferential? Or do you think it's better for him to try and focus on being more aggressive and, and looking to score even more uh, and kind of focusing on the scoring element of it? Or do you think it's more of the responsibility of the, maybe the roster construction around? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, we've seen early on that taking and having more Tyrese Halliburton has been a good thing for the Pacers. His usage hasn't necessarily yeah. skyrocketed, but even more of him has been even better. Like he's been even more efficient right. with just a little bit of a bump. So right. But like I said, like you can get into these games and point to like, oh, you know, the Heat trapped him and Buddy shot to a nine from three and the Hawks trapped him and Buddy shot five of five and like one game was a win and one game wasn't. So while Buddy is a very lethal shooter, that's typically where they have to go and rely to and those shots are going to fall game in and game out. Ben had a pretty decent game against the Clippers as far as I felt some of his growth and getting to the rim with the defense tilted, which is one of his strengths. But he's kind of in an in-between point in his development where I would kind of compare it to like liminal space or like the trapeze parable where he's he started to let go of the swing that he's on. He's not the same player he was last year, but he hasn't grabbed the next swing fully yet. So 
there. In terms of the Pacers, like, yeah, I, I think that's why the Lakers game was a good thing for them. And then season tournament as a whole was a good thing for them because it was illuminating as far as like what exaggerated coverages are going to look like and things that they are still missing. And they're going to need a secondary creator at some point in time. They just, they, yeah. there's not really a place to go with that. Like Andrew Nemhard would give them some optionality, like in the game against the Bucks when the Bucks went two, three, and he was able to go to the nail and make some plays out of the nail. And, and because he's a pretty decent mid range shooter, like that was helpful. So I think that there could be growth between the two of them in that regard, but I still think they need a secondary score in addition yeah. to their, you know, defensive shortcomings. A secondary creator, you say, Very- as I, as I, as I, as I do the, whatever this is called, you know, um, no, I, <laughs> Uh, okay, so I, I guess the the main crux of, of my issue with the defense, and, and you mentioned the defensive rebounding earlier. I think that's a huge part. Like, they obviously love getting out in transition, so it's weird. They get out in transition almost as much as any team in the NBA, but they can't close out defensive possessions to kind of get out and running. It's kind of this weird paradox here. How are they able to get out in transition so often despite being a bad rebounding team? That's something that I'm like, what? How does that work? Yeah, so I mean, it's going to sound really basic, but Tyrese Halliburton, like that's his identity and that's what they crafted the identity around. Like it was very clear in the first four games that he came over from the trade that this is a person who wants to play fast and that he would practically be jumping out of his skin for inbound passes. Like watch the Pacers and how quickly they will like dive into the stands to get a ball so that they can get it for him. So there's no wasted, there's no waste with Tyrese ever. So one of my favorite quirks about him or probably two quirks is if an opposing team makes a shot, a lot of times, like, he doesn't stand to the sideline with, like, his butt to the sideline. Like, he will run on a curve as if, like, there's an opportunity. Right, he's, like, already three quarters. Or, yeah, right. Right, yeah, he's already right. he's already into the motion to get that pass. And then also he never – he doesn't spend much time looking at the inbound passer. He's always looking down the court, taking a peek over his shoulder so that he can see what type of defensive coverage is that opposing team in. Are they in zone? Are they in man? He's already calling a play, and he already knows where Buddy Heald is. Like, if there's going to be an opportunity right. for him to pass, he already knows it before he's ever even caught the ball. So when you're like that and you're just willing to push the ball and TJ McConnell does this too, like TJ McConnell throws a lot of hit passes as well. So they don't have a lot of drop off when they go from one point guard to the next. I mean, I yeah. just think it all mainly keys with him. And by the end of that season, like their transition frequency had dropped back down. And I was getting a little bit nervous as Lauren will know, like the Rick Carlisle Luca teams were not known for their transition frequency. I was like, you know, is he going to let go of the reins? Is this actually going to become a thing? And, they've completely embraced it. Like this is definitely a team where the identity of the team is shaped completely around their franchise player. Yeah. It's funny because the, the the Carlisle element actually in this conversation is pretty potent, right? Lauren, you know, Carlisle one way, (laughs) Caitlin, you also know Carlisle one way. It's like completely different (laughs) sides to a person. Um, And I know there's been things written about him. Stefano had a great piece, you know, kind of detailing the, the buy-in from Carlisle to kind of go ahead with Halliburton and the style that he likes to play. What, from your perspective, Lauren, and I guess from mm-hmm. Caitlin's perspective as well, what have you seen are the biggest differences between how Carlisle is coaching now versus Carlisle was coaching with the Mavs or even early mm-hmm. on in his Pacers tenure? Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, personally, I think the way he's working with this Pacers team now is there's not so much, I don't, friction is the wrong word. I mean, there definitely was friction in Dallas, but I think as far as the flexibility and the control and trust that he gives with the players, especially having such a young team, when you bring in guys from other situations, even that are young, that haven't really worked out in the previous situations, like Obi Toppin, like an Aaron Neesmith, and you've found ways to plug them in and have them be successful in the roles. Obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, you still want more for them to take a bigger leap, but I think just the overall flexibility that Rick, has in my opinion at least comparing the situation with Dallas it's 
kind of night and day to me. Maybe not completely night and day, but I think in Dallas, it was very much a, we're going to run things my way. You score two consecutive buckets or the opposing team scores two consecutive buckets, you know, there's a timeout coming. And so it's just like, <laughs> it was very, it, it was very predictable. It, I feel like it got to a point with Dallas where it just was no longer working. And one thing that was so different in Dallas is that they never had that anchor big man I mean towards the end obviously the Tyson Chandler but now when he's got someone like Miles Turner and you've also got someone like Tyrese I think it opens up roster construction options I think it opens up different ways to play being able to play with pace and so I think him having different things to play with it certainly seems like you weren't he's a lot less um, forced to play one way like he may have been in Dallas that's my opinion right yeah, I mean, I would I would point out the play calling. I think that's number one. I mean, obviously, Luca was frustrated with that at times, or at least it was reported that he was. And right. the season before, well, the season of, before they turned and veered toward the rebuild, there was a lot of pace management going on. Like, Steph talked to me about that in that article where there's clips mm -hmm. on my Twitter account where you can literally hear Rick Carlisle saying, hold it, hold it, in games where they had scored like 10 points in a fourth quarter or less than 10 points in a fourth quarter. And some of that, some of that, meshes with Malcolm Brogdon. Malcolm Brogdon is a far more methodical point guard, more cerebral. That being said, even when Tyrese came over, there was one game they played against the Thunder, and you could see Tyrese looking to the bench every time they went down the floor for what they were going to run. Right. And that's why it was a really telling kind of seminal moment to me when Tyrese made his game winner last year against the Bulls, because you could see during a timeout that Tyrese had said something from the court, and you could see Rick being very amenable to this and was like, oh, you got something? Like, okay. And Tyrese was just like, we're not running that. Like, I know what the right. coverage is going to be. We're running this. And he did that two times in a row. And Rick was like, yeah, like, that's what type of relationship we have. And Tyrese right. was like, yeah, he, he listens to my input. He takes it. And, like, a lot of times yeah. now, like, you don't see Rick being as active from the sidelines. You don't see him constantly standing, constantly. I, I mean, I know what a lot of their play signals are. You don't see a lot of those hand signals. A lot of that is coming from Tyrese most of the time. Even once in a while, yeah. you might see, like, I've, I've seen Ben even in bench units be like, Hey, see, I want to run this to get me out of the corner. You would not have seen That's that awesome. in the first like four games. And I don't, I don't think I'll let Lauren speak to it, but I don't think you would have seen a lot of that in Dallas. No, and I'm, that's why that's what I was gonna say was that is that's kind of what I mean by night and day is obviously he re there was a mutual respect between Luca and Rick, but you could there were so many times visually where you would see the body language between Rick and Luca, and it was not great. It was one of those things where you kind of just sat back and were like, okay, I'm seeing this right in front of me, and I j even in like big time moments in games, and even in like the first quarter when things just aren't going well, and it's like you you kind of just think there's no way that this is going to work because there's just seems to be too much friction. So having that mutual respect, but then also having like the trust, I think what with what we're seeing now between Rick and Tyrese, I think is is huge and is much different than at least what I saw in Dallas. Maybe with Dirk, it might've been there more so with Dirk, but uh, I think uh, it's, I think the relationship between Rick and, and Tyrese is a lot more similar to, to, to Rick and Dirk. That That's pretty fascinating, sure. you know, coaches being able to evolve, just like grow yeah. and adapt. Would Who you knew? Look at that? Who knew? What a Who thought, knew? right? <laughs> what a concept. What a crazy concept. Who knew that was possible? Uh, yeah, I, I just I think it's always fascinating to me. And this sort of relates back to the defense that I'm going to ask about right now. Mm. I feel like, OK, if you have Turner, who's a good defensive minded rim protector type Aaron Neesmith, who has probably been asked to do a little bit too much defensively, but has the talent there on the defensive side. Nembard, we've talked about a little bit McConnell, good point of attack defender. 
Bruce Brown, I thought, you know, like you coming into the season that he was going to be a big part of their defense. I think, like you mentioned, not as good as he's probably was supposed to be. But other than that, there are guys where you can look at on the team and say, well, these guys could be, should be, might be good defenders eventually at some point. You look at like Ben Matherin and his size and you're like, well, why is he not getting it on that end? Tyrese Halliburton, who like, you know, for all his greatness on the offensive side, really on the defensive side, sometimes sometimes falls asleep, sometimes gets hunted a bunch of times in these switches. Like in, in that Celtics game, it was pretty clear that they were going after Tyrese a considerable amount. My question to you is, and like I feel like there's this philosophy that defense is like half of it is effort, half of it is buy-in, right? How much do you agree with that concept that it is buy-in, that it is effort? And is that part of it with this Pacers team you know, you kind of alluded to it at the top of the podcast where you're like, all hope is lost. They cannot be a good defensive team. But is there hope for this Pacers team to just a little bit better? I think you can – I hate to put it this way, but I think you can tell a difference with the eye test. Like at the end of the Bjorkren – at the end of the Bjorkren reign, you could tell that there was no longer buy-in in what the that Bjorken scheme was. Reign. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was – it was we're trying to confuse opponents, but we're more often confusing ourselves. And it was very evident that it was – Hyper aggressive and underbaked, and you would watch them out on the court. And when half the team thinks they're in a box and one, and the other half thinks they're just running straight man, and there's a lot of finger yeah. pointing going on, and especially like something with buy-in that I notice a lot is when communication breaks down, is when you know an on-ball defender doesn't know that a screen's coming, and they're having to look over their shoulder to see if there is a screen. That means the big's right. not telling them where the screen's coming from. There's no there's no verbal cues, so you can you can tend to see some of that stuff. I mean, I'm sure here in the last few weeks, you're probably thinking, hey, do these Toronto Raptors? Yeah have a lot of buy-in and what they're doing defensively given what this personnel should be capable of doing well that's that's why i kind of asked the question yeah yeah right so in the pacers case though this is where i'm going to make the the distinction i don't necessarily think it's a buy-in issue with this scheme or last year's scheme i think that there's a such thing as we think of feel on offense. We don't always think of feel on defense. And that's kind of what it is with Ben a lot of the time. Ben has these mm-hmm. inflection points. And that's why I said I refer to him as liminal space. Like he had great moments at the end of their first win over the Bucks, where he absorbed bumps from Giannis, got two steals. He prevented Chris Middleton from turning over his shoulder. Some of what he can do in on-ball situations, you're like, that's something. And if I'm the coaching staff, I'm going to show that on a constant loop and be like, we saw you. You did this. But then there's times... <laughs> (laughs) In off-ball situations, like I have a clip out there right now from uh, the Clippers game the other night. James Harden's up at the top of the point of attack. TJ McConnell's guarding him. TJ gets wrecked. James gets right past him. And the Pacers have specifically put Ben up at the right block so as a deterrent for James to drive left. And it's like he's being used as a goalie, but he's operating much more like a gate. Like It's like he doesn't fully understand, like, I'm here to prevent this penetration. So you really have to watch him away from the ball a lot of times and team concepts. And like, you will see tiny steps of growth from him. Like against the Hornets last night, I actually recognized for the first time. I'm like, Hey, he tried to scram out TJ McConnell. Like he recognized that was a mismatch. He motioned for it. He wanted to go do it, but that doesn't, that doesn't happen with him all the time. And some of it's, you know, on that end of the floor, that's why he plays better out of sets than out of reads offensively too. So I think some of this is having a young roster where guys are still learning things like Ben is capable of being a better defender than what he has shown. I really do believe that. I just think a lot of it for them, like you mentioned, Miles, I'm going to tread lightly here. I don't think that he's defended to his level. I think that there started to be a little bit of drop off last year. And I think that's been a little bit more pronounced this year. He still has had some really solid games, but 
I'm also a person who I don't know that I necessarily believe in the modern NBA anymore, that a rim protector can be your strongest defensive piece and that you're going to have a very successful uh, defensive floor because I've seen this now three years with the Pacers and it's, it's not really happening without having the other infrastructure around him. So um, I think it's a multitude of things. If I I've said on record, like the scheme changes they made this year, like trying to defend a Tyrese Maxey, Joel Embiid, empty side pick and roll two versus two. That's probably not something that I would have done, but I can defend the coaching staff and be like, okay, they tried the exact opposite thing last year and it didn't work either. This was still a bottom five defense. So at a certain point in time, like this is a roster issue and it has to get mitigated. So that's kind of where I land on it. Speaking of roster uh, issues, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to just keep interjecting with stuff like that. Sorry, Lauren, go ahead. It's coming, huh? It's coming. No, well, I wanted to ask about like the fouling. And so you, I mean, you touched on the youth of the roster, even just Miles Turner. I don't want to say like suggest taking a huge step back, but like the differences from year to year um, and even just the personnel and what their capabilities are. Do you think the foul being foul prone and kind of, not having the maybe the strongest defensive identity do you think that it's the type of thing that is is more so youth is more so just physic or like the specific personnel capabilities or what do you think the answer is i guess even just for the rest of this season assuming that they don't make a an absolutely massive roster change at the deadline yeah so with neesmith neesmith has been a foul machine the last two years i mean i think last year he actually had the highest rate of shooting fouls per 100 against not out of non bigs um, among qualified players. And he's probably pretty close to that right now as well, too. But like that predated his time with the Pacers is like, look at cleaning the glass. He's like fifth percentile every year in the NBA and foul rate. Yeah. And his first preseason game he played with the Pacers, he would have fouled out if it was a real game. So like, <laughs> I mean, that that's just like some of what it is. And like, he just doesn't, right. he, he makes strong, he has strong defensive moments, but like I said, he's very scrappy. He wants to pick up and pressure. He usually plays with two hands a lot. And the Pacers, since he's come over here, have asked him defend, to defend up a lot on fives, on fours. So he is getting overwhelmed in some of those situations. So if they don't find like a viable starting four that would allow him to shift more open to the three, then I think that you have to look at doubling more. And that's something they've been resistant to. I mean, you wouldn't have known this from the Raptors game because they were more proactive um, doubling Siakam than what they had been throughout the season. Yeah. But like leaving him on an island with Giannis in the post, I think you're kind of asking for him to pick up a lot of fouls. So in both those games against Milwaukee, I think he's had five. Here the last couple of games, he hasn't had as many. And that's in part because they've been showing more help in places. So, I mean, I think that that's the easiest way to protect fouls. And then like some of their bigs, like Isaiah Jackson's also like sixth and percentile and foul rate for him I think he's somebody that tends to be better defending as like a weak side rim protector than necessarily Mm -hmm. directly in the pick and roll coverage I think he's gotten a little bit better with that but it's kind of like with Jaron Jackson right like when Jaron plays with a center he doesn't foul as much because he can play you know in that roamer role where the action isn't coming right at him so I think there's little nips and tucks they could do that could probably reduce some of that in addition to just players being more cognizant of it and not grabbing as much which I know is something that they talk about a lot but yeah, I mean they didn't they didn't have a great foul rate last year and, and certainly I think they're like in the bottom five right now. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. That's another aspect. Yeah. Like you, you really can't point to many things and be like, that's something they do well on defense. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, so okay. interesting. Just considering the personnel, but it's I so know, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um 
I have two like bigger NBA general questions before we get into the trade stuff that will inevitably happen. Um, the first one is what new scheme, and this was actually something Nabil Paktak kind of mentioned on Twitter. You said you like the question. I got to ask the question. Um, what new scheme slash concept do you see trickling into the NBA or seeing being implemented in the not so distant future? Yeah, I was a really big fan of this question. I love it when people ask this type <laughs> of stuff. So um, I think that probably the thing that we've seen the most and that could probably be taken even further is the offensive rebounding rate, right? So I think this year on Cleaning the Glass, the average offensive rebounding rate is like 28%, which is the highest it's been in like, I think the last 10 seasons, if you go back and look. And I think a lot of what we're thinking the, the rationale for that is, is the possession war, right? Like we want to get as many possessions and get more scoring opportunities than the opposition. And I think that that is a big piece of it. But I think that you can watch at times, too, and a moment that stood out for me a lot was in Summer League. Ben Shepard crashes from the wings harder than anybody on the Pacers roster. And when you watched him play against Oklahoma City, there was times where he was crashing from the wings and that was taking the defender with him. Like, it wasn't the defender was leaking out. It was like, this guy is crashing hard. We have to be able to prevent him from getting on the glass. And then that was allowing him to pick up, like, Chet Holmgren because Holmgren's getting the rebound then. And then you're having a guard being able to pick up a big and then it's harder for that big to do grab and go stuff. But something that I think that could trickle over into the NBA and that we're already kind of seeing being tested out at a specific G league team. If you know which G league team to watch is that um, the NBL, are you, are you familiar with, um, are you familiar with scrumming on offensive rebounds? Do you know what no, that is? No, go for it. No, explain. Okay, so the NBL, like a rugby term, scrumming on offensive rebounds means you're sending all five people to the offensive glass. Not really so much with the intention of getting those rebounds. There's a 50-50 chance that you might. It's not so much about generating extra possessions. It's a transition defense scheme. So when everybody goes to the glass, everybody stays on the high side of that matchup so that you're automatically preventing a cross match. You're running to your own matchup, staying on the high side so that you can then run with them on the way back. Now, there's certainly ways to exploit this. But in terms of helping NBA teams still be able to hunt some of those second chances and potentiality, again, it's a transition defense scheme, but also not give that up. I think that's something that we could see in the near team future. That's interesting. So but what if what if teams just start to leak out? Like, what if they're like, screw it, we're not going to worry about defensive rebounds. We're just going to like, you know what I mean? Like, or at least one guy on the on the defense or yeah, is like, yeah, we're not going to. We're not going to even worry about him crashing the glass. Just run, you know? Yeah, and that's where, that's where you have to have the right personnel in order to be able to implement it because if they do leak out, then you just you go with them. You'd have to stay right. on the high side of every single person. So if the, if the guys crash, then you, you stay on the high side of where the defenders are. Like the biggest yeah. area where it could create a problem still is like if a big switches out to a guard and you have that mismatch already and then the guard goes to crash it, then you're you're right. there's going to be a natural cross match but i think you can find like lots of spots like there was when the pacers gave up 150 to the celtics tj mcconnell took a mid-range shot and i was like that would have been a great opportunity to send all five people because miles turner ends up getting cross match against jalen brown he gets beat tj has to peel switch and now tj is giving up an offensive rebound because of that particular cross match so i do right. think that that's that's a trend of something that we might get to see but you you do have to have the right type of personnel in order to to implement it. So I, I like yeah, I said, I think that there's some, I think that there's some G league teams that are already testing this. If, if people want to, are, are you talking about your, uh, what are they? The mad ants or is that, is that what it is? I, right? I can't That's say the... which teams are trying things <laughs> and which teams aren't. You can't give out the, the workbook. Okay. I have a second question here. Uh, it relates to coaching. It kind of talk, we talked about it a little bit, but I've always thought coaching to most people 
the the casual observer is a black box just because they don't know they can't see the day-to-day and yes like even if we know the play calling even if we know the schemes that they're running for the most part it's sort of the unknown right and for fans it's easy to say well blame it on the coach right oh he's not doing it right the rotations the lineups etc it's something i'm experiencing right now on the raptors side of things um (laughs) You and mean I if they don't make of, two rotation changes that they won't be in the yeah, playoffs? They, they, they won't be a 50-win <laughs> team, Caitlin. It's absolutely ridiculous. But, um, yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to ask you, for people who maybe say, well, you know, the lineup changes, the rotation, starting lineup, whatever, right? How do you contextualize coaching when you're trying to discuss with another person that maybe doesn't know as much about the schematic side of things where this – coaches excelling at where they're faulty at etc etc i will say that in general an analogy that i like to use for coaching is that i think it's kind of like a jockey i think a jockey can certainly help or hinder a horse in crossing a race but horses win races players win games coaches can help players win games i think sometimes that the hindrances can uh speak a little bit louder than the helps like what I was bringing up sometimes with Nate Bjorker, and I think sometimes the hindrances are are bigger things than what the helps can be because I think that players, like I said, still win games. So I think that yeah. that's the number one thing that I would remind people of, and that's not to say that coaching doesn't matter. I grew up in a coaching family, but I would say yeah. that like my dad agrees with this take, and he would say that the best <laughs> coaches probably do agree with this take. Um, right. <laughs> I think that there has to be a type of recognition there, but like, I think that if I wanted to explain like, Hey, this is why Rick Carlisle is good at his job. I would probably bring out a particular play and be like, Hey, he anticipated that coming out of that timeout that that team was going to go zone and he had already called a zone buster. And here's why this zone buster worked. And here's why he created an advantage for that type of player. Like it it typically won't necessarily revolve around lineup situations a lot though. I do think you can point to like key situations where you might be like, Hey, because of that certain type of coverage, this player might've been, a little bit more successful here or there, but like, that's not something that I typically obsess over a lot. And I will say too, that I think sometimes we as fans, and I'm probably guilty of this too. We, we don't always remember that what we see on the court is a very small piece of what these coaches are seeing every single day at practices about why a player may or may not be playing and what they understand of what that's players current understanding and where they are in their growth trajectory and what they're ready to be doing or aren't ready to be doing. So I always try to put myself in that position and be like, I don't have all the available information. I don't know as much (laughs) as they do about what's going on behind closed doors about why, you know, playing time is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, I I appreciate you saying that because, oh my God, it's such a, yeah, it's like the worst thing in the world. Anyways, because Mm -hmm. it's so easy to blame a coach, right? Because most people Mm -hmm. don't really know the nuance of what a coach is exactly supposed to be doing. So it's just like, oh, well, something must be going wrong. Um, Okay, Mm -hmm. so let's let's get into. Wait, I want to add one small piece to this as well. Yeah, there was was somebody who said that they kind of wanted a a report card on Rick in general. And I guess the one piece that I would the one piece that I would add to this is, is I think that there's always a tendency in the playoffs where coaches get credited for good defense and blamed for bad offense and players get blamed for bad defense and credited for good offense. And like night to night from the Pacers perspective, you're watching the greatest offense of all time. And for some reason, this coaching staff is not getting much credit for that. 
Like this is all being credited to Tyrese Halliburton. And what I said, I think is true. Like players do win basketball games. Tyrese's skill is what this is being built around. But this is still like Rick's still capable of being fire with the pen. He's still engineering a lot of this. So if you're going to blame Rick for what's going on defensively, then you kind of need to give him some credit for what's going on offensively. So yeah, that, that's no, I just want to add that in there. It, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. I, I just it coach talk always seems to get me really angry because you just get frustrated because like, okay, me and someone may have a different set of like understanding of what's happening on the court. And you and me may have a different understanding of what's happening on the court, but like ultimately it's so hard to go into every single detail of what a coach does. And then because of that, we're all left guessing and that that happens with front office stuff too. And so we have to sort of look at track record and history in order to do that. And there we go. Segway trade talk. Um, so <laughs> um, the, the trade talk is here. Uh, look, the Raptors and Pacers have been involved, linked, if you will, in various conversations over the last couple of months. They Just have in been. general. Uh, have they been, though? Well, yeah, that's another thing. You know, you have fans being like questioning. No, they haven't been in conversation. Anyways, um, in general, do you think the Pacers will be buyers uh, this summer or this season? Or do you think they're going to wait until the summer to kind of see where they're at this isn't a front office like despite the fact that they did veer toward a rebuild and and got Tyrese Halliburton at the time that they did they don't make a lot of in-season trades and they've talked about that in the past that a lot of times when they sign a player or they bring a player in over a trade they don't do that with looking at that player as an asset they very much like to look at players as people and giving them Mm -hmm. that full year to be in that new market this is something that they've discussed so it would be somewhat out of character for them to make a big shakeup in the season, but it's also their jobs. Like it's also their jobs to be evaluating where the weaknesses are. And like I said, I'm not somebody who really dips their toes into the transaction market a lot. And the fact that I, you can see my tweets, I'm on record. I, (laughs) 10 games into the year, I was pretty convinced that this defense was not going to be better with what the construction of the roster currently is. And I think that my opinion on that might have been like, hey, that, that's that's OK. Like the season wasn't necessarily supposed to be about them making the playoffs. I mean, even going into it, if you listen to a lot of what happened and came out of media day, like Tyree certainly wants to win. Like if, when he came back from Team USA, he was asked, what's your biggest t- takeaway from, you know, not meddling and what happened there? And he was like, I'm tired of losing. And that's why the in-season tournament, I think, mattered to him about as much as it did. Mm -hmm. So, like, he wants to win. And obviously, the coaching staff is trying to put the team in the best position to win. But the front office at the same time was kind of like, hey, you know, we're trying to take steps forward. But we also still realize that this is about development. Well, I think that the calculus changed when Tyrese comes out and is playing like an MVP candidate. If he's a top 10 player, I think that that you start to be more aggressive. and, And this offense allows you to be more aggressive, too. Like, I'm not saying it's going to stay at this exact historic pace the entire season. I'm sure that teams will continue to come with ways to mitigate some of it and to find ongoing counters, the more scouting that they have on it. But I don't want to say that you'd be wasting a season, but if there's a player out there that you think that fits this timeline and could help you on that end of the floor who might be available, I think you would be remiss if you weren't trying to make overtures there. Especially right. also, if you have any, if you have any knowledge at all that that player might be willing to resign with you, then yeah. 
Exactly. And if you in the <laughs> uh, yeah, in the OG Ananobi situation, if you can get the bird rights for that type of player and potentially, you know, be able to sign them over whatever the cap is that you can get. So I think that's an important part of it. Obviously, Pascal Siakam extension eligible. That's also another wrinkle in this. It's like, will they be willing to resign? But I guess just in terms of what the Pacers need right now and what they're looking for between those two players, who do you think you would prefer skill set wise? because of what the Pacers, you know, we've talked about it over the last 40 minutes, what they need. They both address different needs. I mean, I think I have yeah. some question. I have more question marks with regards to Pascal. I mean, people in the Toronto media sphere know that I adore his game. I mm-hmm. compare him a lot to being able to slide a piece of paper through a crack in the door. And that's a lot of the times the amount of space that he has to operate in and the offense that yeah. he plays in. And that is not what it would be like here. Like just knowing what his numbers are out of empty side pick and rolls when a guard screens for him. Like imagine Buddy Heald doing that for him. Imagine Mm -hmm. Tyrese Halliburton potentially doing that for him and the amount of pressure that could take off and what he's seeing against traps, having another secondary creator. That being said, I also watched what it looked like for him the first seven games of the season and what it looked for for him when it was like, hey, let's try to be a little bit more intentional and get him some post touches. Lauren will know. Rick Carlisle probably ain't going to run a post-centric <laughs> offense. This will never be a post-centric offense. Right. And I know yeah. that from personal experience because DeMontis Sabonis's role was pretty whack for about two and a half months <laughs> until they got to the point where it's like, hey, you know what? This egalitarian offense and like putting him in the corner doesn't really make sense for anyone, not for him and not for anybody else. And like, I get where they got to that point because they didn't have any movement shooting. Like watching the difference between him with the Pacers and him with the Kings is like watching a fountain with a burned out pump. Like when you got to Sacramento, I was like, ah, the water's turned on. This is what this looks like. But like they, they weren't super amenable to putting him in the post. Like he, not that you have to play Pascal at a triangle concepts, but Sabonis very much wanted to play at a triangle concepts. The coaching staff very much did not. So I have some wonderings in my head of "Hmm, what would that look like with Pascal on this roster? Even though that I think that the spacing and the players that are on this roster would be very complimentary to him, depending upon who would be going in and out. OG is much easier to plug in, plug into that space. And I think that if OG were on this roster, he would be getting a few more of the types of on-ball creation reps that he doesn't regularly get because Scotty and Pascal are naturally in front of him in the pecking order for very obvious reasons. In addition to Dennis Schroeder getting as much of the ball as he gets. So, and then just defensively, OG hasn't been very good defensively lately. I haven't seen a ton of games, no. but like the few times that I've turned it on, like he has had some drop off, but I think that there's, there's a soul tax that comes for playing on a type of team that they're on right now. No, when people right. are on yeah. expiring contracts and when you start to sense that something's stale and there's an uncertainty. So I think that that might be part of that, but just having somebody that, you know, that like, for instance, like what I brought up with miles earlier, I think if the coaching staff had their way, they would like to get him out of pick and rolls more often and be using him mm-hmm. as a weak side corner dude. They did that a lot um, with Aaron Neesmith last year where they would put him on five so that they could switch ball screens. They don't have a feasible way to be doing that. You can't do that with Obi Toppin. Obi does not have the hip flexibility to be somebody who's going to guard a five and switch out to a one. That's why Buddy Heald's right. guarding some of these better matchups. So being <laughs> able to do that with OG on an Obi and just, I, I mean, I, I think at his best, he's probably the most positionalist defender in the NBA. So is it going to fix and remedy everything and they're going to be an elite defense simply because they got him? No, but they, they have to take a step somewhere and it would shift some other people into more natural roles that I think would make the defense more functional. So, and timeline yeah. wise, it just makes more sense. Yeah. And he's Indiana, think, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Pascal thing is, is so fascinating to me because coming into this conversation, I was like, to me, in my mind on paper, 
and obviously if it were if it were going to happen some people would say if it were going to happen it would have happened already i don't necessarily agree with that but i think what's so interesting about the pacers with pascal is what as far as the development and on the pacers side of things and not you know this not wanting to rush the timeline situation it's so hard when you have Tyrese popping the way he is, and then you have the the $19 million expiring contract in Buddy Heald. So that's why I keep going back and forth of on top of everything that they have going in their favor to being reasons why they should make a trade and push in the chips. At the same time, I look at the Pacers roster and I'm like, okay, with the young, what young players would they truly be prepared or like ready to part with right now? And that's where I kind of come to this point where I'm like, are they willing to push all those chips in? If, if like you just mentioned, this offensive uh, schematic maybe issues that that Pascal could potentially present, do you think that with how much maybe they like their young guys or maybe they don't like some of them, do you think that that's something that they would be prepared to do with Pascal specifically now? Or do you think that, oh, it would probably only be OG? From what I know and understand, they were they were very serious about the calls that they made to Toronto about Pascal. I think okay, the reservations there were what Pascal was putting out there about uh, not wanting to resign anywhere but Toronto. Yeah. So there, there was very – Maybe that's changed, though, Caitlin. Maybe, you know, he yeah. found a really nice restaurant in, in Indiana. <laughs> maybe there – you know, he likes Tyrese Halliburton. Who knows? Maybe and that's Maybe changed. he watched Tyrese know. in the in-season tournament and was like, wow, that's what yeah. spacing looks like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's entirely yeah. possible. So, I mean, I, I, I do know that that was a legitimate thing when it got reported at the time. And mm-hmm. um, on the buddy front, I think that some of that probably got a little bit misconstrued because when the reporting came out, it, it read very much like Buddy had requested a trade. I do not think that Buddy requested a trade. I think that they were far apart in ex- contract extension negotiations. I think they're to a place now where Tyrese and Buddy are very close. Buddy, I had made a joke. I did a preseason pod with Tony East at Locked on Pacers, and he was like, how far into the season do you think we'll be before there's you know, a podcast about when Buddy, well, should Buddy be starting? And I go, I give it to Black Friday at the latest. <laughs> Buddy was in the starting lineup two days before Black Friday. Yeah. <laughs> so like their chemistry together and, and like they continue, like people always point out like Buddy's defense or this or that, or like this relationship yeah. isn't working. Like they outscore opponents by five points per 100 when the two of them are out there. So um, I think that it's, it's an embarrassment of riches as far as spacing when you have both of them so i think i would i'm to the point where unless they're going to be buyers and really be able to get somebody that they think is going to make them better i would be surprised if he gets moved even even though the fact that he's on an expiring deal because if i were them this is just me speaking from my perspective i would let it ride i would get to the summer see if he can find the amount of money that he thinks that he wants and if he doesn't, I think that he likes playing with Rick. I think he likes playing with Tyrese. I think he likes the freedom that he has in the scheme. And I don't think that I don't think that there's any like severed relationship there by any um, stretch of the imagination. So I don't think it's yeah. completely implausible that he he would still be on the team next year unless they find some avenue too. of being buyers. I was yeah. going to say they they have a considerable amount of cap space this summer too. So like they can still go not big fish hunting, but they could go and make some adjustments to this team, uh improvements to kind of make sure that they right? Am I am, am I mistaken that? Right, that because I mean have they have Bruce with the team option. So like if they right, wanted to be buyers right, right yeah. now, they could theoretically use Bruce instead of Buddy. Yeah. yeah. Potentially. Right. Yeah. So which dot dot dot. That's interesting. Um I I guess the other, the other question I would have is like, you know, pe- people mention Pascal and OG all the time. Is there anybody else? Like, is there other targets out there? Anybody else you think could be interesting for this team? If I'm giving up one of the young players, if that's what it's going to take, not for me. 
Fair. Like, I, Fair. I'm willing to do that for OG on Anobi because I think at its at his strongest point, he's a defensive player of the year candidate. Like, if, mm-hmm. if I'm not getting somebody at that caliber that's actually going to be able to be a significant core piece of fixing that problem, I'm no. not going to be yeah. taking calls on Nemhard and Mathern and Walker. Yeah. yeah, no, that's fair. I'm that's wondering fair. if they're a sleeper team for Caruso. That's kind of something I think with that TJ McConnell contract is something that I'm wondering if if anything picks up there. But I feel like if there were momentum there, we would be hearing about it by now. So who knows? TJ McConnell's an interesting one. Yeah. Start yeah. the season. Start start the season, and they say <laughs> that that TJ that they had the hardest convert. Rick said he had the hardest conversation he's ever had with a player. And that it was about TJ not being in the rotation and Andrew and Tyrese both have double doubles in that game against the Wizards, which it's the Wizards. And then the next game, TJ was playing again. And like TJ does contribute to winning. He can change games. I say it many times, like you run push or pistol for TJ and he gets two feet in the paint. You're probably going to score points. The only question is going to be whether the cutter finishes or not on the 45 cut. Like you're probably getting points out of that. And the crowd gets into it when he gets, you know, inbound steals. Like he's definitely somebody who plays to the crowd a lot. And that means something to them. He's a good veteran, but like, I don't think it's been great for Andrew Nemhart. I'll just put it that way. If it were me, I would, I would be rather having him playing more out of ball screens and, and having a more consistent role. And some of that isn't necessarily anybody's fault. He had a kidney stone. He had back soreness. Now he has a knee issue, but mm-hmm. I think at a certain point in time to go from last season being, uh, second round pick who became a key starter to this season because they signed Bruce for reasons that I understand. And Bruce, Bruce has been for the most part, good for them, but that moved him back to the bench. And it was like, okay, well, if he comes off the bench and that's all right, because he's going to get to be able to play his more natural position. And you can also let him play out of ball screens with the bench. And then he can come in and still play minutes with Tyrese and alleviate some of Tyrese's burden defensively. And there's games where you'll watch and it's like, Oh, we're in the in-season tournament and TJ's just supplanted him or, right or they're playing in Miami. And despite the fact that Andrew has like 14 potential assists and 22 minutes and has made numerous defensive plays, his shot isn't falling. So then it's TJ and I, I can make, like I just said, I don't criticize rotations a lot. And I'm not like, I can, I can understand how they get to TJ being on the court in certain minutes. And I made the same argument before the season even started that TJ, because Tyrese had been out because of team USA and because Andrew had the kidney stone, once TJ put his TJ-ness all over the court, he was too good not to play. So then that's yeah. kind of the problem. Like, he doesn't deserve to be somebody who's a third-string point guard who isn't playing. I think he can yeah. be a contributor on a good basketball team. It just makes more things yeah. more difficult for developing some of the key pieces on your roster. Yeah, yeah the Pacers have two very good backup point guards in the rap. You know, I'm just, it's just have it fun with TJ. Like... <laughs> <laughs> people oh, know, people know. I, like I've, I've propagandized people. I think to Andrew Nemhart. I, I like Andrew Nemhart a lot. I, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. Look, I'm a, I'm a fan. Uh, he used to hoop at the same LA Fitness I go to, so I definitely. <laughs> There's so many people in Toronto that. who will like <laughs> message me and be like, "I heard you on a podcast. I went to high school with Andrew." <laughs> There you go. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. A lot of the, I guess a lot of the people who listen are from Aurora, Ontario, which is okay. Sounds good. Let's rock and roll. Um, there we go. Caitlin, uh, I guess the other question I have, and this was something that Samson also wanted me to ask you. Do you listen to other NBA podcasts? Okay. Because now you're going to listen to the objective basketball podcast, obviously, Clearly. but do you listen, <laughs> do you listen to other NBA podcasts? I have like three guesses as to why he's asking this question. Do you know why? Probably. Do you have I a good, I've, 
So me and him have this conversation often because he does not listen to any NBA yeah. podcast at all. Which is funny because how like, is he going to know my answers to any of these questions? He's not going to listen to them. Yeah. <laughs> hey, maybe maybe he'll make the exception. I don't know. Who knows? But yeah, he doesn't listen to any pod. He like he'll be like, oh, I listen to a music podcast or a movie podcast or whatever. But no basketball podcast for him. So I guess he's just trying to see if if you're like him. Do you do you, do you? So when I was on his podcast on Thanksgiving, this came up because he had said something about, he's like, oh, on my podcast, somebody asked me a question between Jade and Ivy and Andrew Nemhard. And I said, because I propagandized you to Andrew Nemhard, I'm guessing you picked Nemhard. And he was like, I did. And he's like, that's what I actually said or whatever. And I said, wait, 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 wait. How have I propagandized you to Andrew Nemhard? Because you said you don't read or listen to any NBA content. (laughs) And he's like, he's like, no, I like, and then he was saying that like, there's certain people or certain things that he reads or he listens to, but he's like, I don't, I don't listen to podcasts. And I was like, I think that I go, so you've never listened to a podcast that I've been on that isn't one Ah. with you. And he was like, You'll have to go back and watch the video, but I'm guessing that this is why this is coming up. But um, to answer, and I did answer him on that podcast. I have listened to his podcast, not all of the time. I've I've listened to it when I think that you and Trey and he did one around the trade deadline yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at your yeah. house last year, around the time yes, when yeah. I was fired. And I, I did awesome. watch that episode. <laughs> um, and then like, I, I do want to support, like, I will listen to this. I, I like to support friends that I have in the industry. So like I listen to Dan Favalli at Hardwood Knox. I do not, there's none that I listen to. I can't honestly say that there's any that I've listened to every single episode on. Like, mm-hmm. I think yeah, you guys would probably admit that like the more you get into the industry and the more content you're producing, the less time that you have to read and yeah, listen to other content, but like consume. Oh my God. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, that one. And then like my friend, Adam Spinella, before he got hired by the Sixers, shout out to him for getting hired by the Sixers. I, I, I subscribe to the box and one. I listened to his podcast when he had it. So yep. I'm trying to think if I, I there's probably going to be people who are listening to this and they're like, you don't listen to my podcast. There's, <laughs> there's coaching podcasts out there that I listen to. I like slapping glass. That's not an NBA podcast, but I like that one a lot. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably, that's I like fast break it. breakfast. I listen to that one. I, I will say that like team specific, I like, I probably like a lot of team specific podcasts better than like other national ones. I guess I would say like at the main major outlets. So like, I like, yeah, yeah. I think buzz beats pretty good. That does the Hornets. I think that, Samson's is good covering the Raptors, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. I never listened to my own podcast. I've never listened to anything that I've done. You've never, you've never gone back and just been like, ah, let me listen. To <laughs> no, oh, I would probably man. never record anymore if I did that. I'd be like, oh no, I was so rambly. You gave them no space to talk. Like, yep. never do that again. Oh my god. That no, yeah, mean. it's that yeah, mean. that's that's funny. Um, I don't know. I agree with you that it's hard to consume at once you start to produce a lot of stuff. It's just you, you run out of time, and mm-hmm. that's that's the majority of it. Um, okay. Um, before we head out of here, Caitlin, anything you want to plug, mention, say, go for? Yeah, before we get out of here, I will plug this podcast. I will tell people to listen to it and the rest of the interviews that you guys have on here. Lauren and I both come <laughs> from the former confines of Vox Media, so we have that in common. Nice. Um, yeah. If people go to my X handles at C2 underscore Cooper, if they go there, the link to my Patreon's there, patreon.com slash basketball. She wrote, I have started doing some videos over there in addition to written content. Most of that was connected to the in-season tournament, but people liked it and they wanted me to do more of that. So if you're somebody who likes audio video better than writing, if you're somebody who likes writing better than that, there's a little bit of sampling of each over there. So that's, that's what I will plug. 
Yeah, it's uh, I mean, if you don't know, for the people who are listening to this and are an hour into this podcast, if you don't know Caitlin Cooper by now uh, in terms of consumer content, you should know, ladies and gentlemen, mm -hmm. one of the best that's doing it right now. Um, I will say also, you both of you guys are very hard to at on Twitter. Did you know that? Did you know it's hard to actually mention you guys? I have to like find the exact wording of your ats for really? some reason or else some random people will pop up another caitlin or another lauren i don't know why oh, no it's that tough it's tough out right. there for caitlin there's like 200 <laughs> caitlin coopers i'm not joking that's why my handle's terrible i don't like it right c2 it's redundant <laughs> it's very redundant it's not good but like finding a gmail address finding a twitter handle it's tough yeah. out there hopefully Hopefully a good time for Caitlin's in Indiana, though. I, I you know, I'm not going to be. Yeah. I mean, I already obviously already wasn't the most popular Caitlin, but I'm certainly not going to be now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. OK, Caitlin, thank you so much for tapping into the Objective Basketball Podcast, talking to us about the Indiana Pacers uh, from Lauren, from myself. Thank you very much. Happy holidays, by the way, to the people who are going to be listening to this. Happy holidays. Enjoy yourself and uh, take care. Bye-bye. Follow hosts at Just S. Barahini on all socials and at the Lauren Gunn on Twitter. The Objective Basketball Podcast. Delivering the NBA.